may be seated. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The people that read scripture in, uh, in our worship services are, are those that have uh, volunteered to do that in our stewardship forms uh, once a year. Uh, we have the opportunity to uh, indicate how God might be calling us to, to come and uh, participate in the life of the church. And uh, we lifted up the group of women today who, who have indicated that. And uh, whether they have done that through those stewardship forms or by recruitment or from, from need that they have seen and addressed, uh, they still have served as well. Our readers um, are assigned by Julie Graham and about three months at a time. Uh, and they, uh, they willingly come and they read. Um, the reader of our gospel today is, uh, is the president of, uh, of Women Ministries. Um, when she found out what the gospel lesson was, she said 1 through 41, John 9, 1 through 41. And she said, I won't be able to do that in one breath. And, uh, but she sat down uh, at, the, at the table and started to uh, try to look at it. Uh, I happened to be in, uh, in the other room um, looking at the printer and the computer hoping it wouldn't go on pause again and, um, and very, very prayerfully thinking about uh, the service to come when, uh, when I started to hear uh, chuckles and laughter from, from the other room. My first thought was that she had abandoned the scripture and was looking um, online or something at the latest uh, news that might be coming out of Washington. <laughs> and, uh, but she hadn't. She was, uh, she was looking at John 9. Uh, she said, how do you say this word? S-I-L-O-A-M. I said, well, that's Siloam. It's a pool. She said, I know that. And uh, she said, are you sure it's not Siloame? And I said, no. Well, if we were singing that in Latin, that's how we would sing it. And I said, no, it's, it's a transliteration of a Hebrew word. Oh. I said, Siloam was a pool that, uh, that was uh, at the end of a of a conduit that came from uh, a spring outside Jerusalem. And um, it came through a system of tunnels that would cut through uh, a bluff of rock uh, 583 feet long uh, that had been carved out of rock in order for that water to come into Jerusalem, into the walls. So at times of attack or siege, the people would have water in order to live and survive. And it had, um, it had 33 rock-cut steps that, that descended into the rock, into this, into this pool. And, Peter would, and people would go down to, uh, uh, to get the water that they needed out of this basin carved out of the rock. It was a landmark in, uh, in Jerusalem in that time and still is. And, uh, and it was also on the, on the path uh, that led to the temple. 
Now John 8 mentions that Jesus and his disciples have been at the temple and that they are uh, heading away from the temple here in John 9. And, and as they approach this area, uh, they see this man that's been blind from birth. She said, thanks a lot. I really didn't need a sermon on that. <laughs> it was quiet for a little while, and then and the laughter started again. And then and she said, I heard, uh, that's ridiculous. My concentration was completely disrupted, and I wondered what she was talking about. And, but then I, I realized what she was talking about when she said, Oh, men, men. <laughs> and I realized, oh, she's talking about the men in the story. She's talking about the, the, the leaders of the synagogue. She's talking about, about those who, who engaged this, uh, this man whose sight had been healed and restored. And, um, and, they, and they start pestering him. They start investigating. They start... Uh, um, Trying to uh, trying to refute what what has happened, and they they seem blind to to the miracle that has taken place. And again and again, they go back to him, and uh, and he gets he gets frustrated himself, and he 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 answers back, and he said, "Why why are you asking me this again? I told you there was this man who who came and he spat on." And the dirt and made mud and, and put it in my eyes. And, and then I could see. And I could see. Well, this man was a sinner. I don't care if he's a sinner or not. I, I, all I know, I, once I was blind and now I can see. It is kind of a comical text, actually, to see the lengths at which these leaders are distracted by their judgment and and keeping the rules and resisting the the evidence that this uh, this man this Jesus was the Messiah the one sent from God the synagogue had even made a rule gathered together and said let's make a rule whoever believes in this Jesus as the Christ as the Messiah will be excommunicated will be out of the synagogue he will not be in our group anymore so that was at stake too. And so when they approach his parents of all people, the, the parents don't want to be excommunicated from the synagogue. They throw their son under the bus and said, he's of age, ask him. It just gets more and more absurd from our point of view. And maybe that's part of the attraction of this story and part of why we need to read all 41 verses. Because it illuminates um, that time and place and eliminates all the kind of uh, thoughts, theological thoughts about, now why is this person blind from birth? He's the only person in the Gospels that has that condition. There are a couple in Acts that had that, but, but in the Gospels, this is the only one that is blind from birth. Not given a name, but uh, was it him who sinned or... Or his parents who sinned. Jesus brushes that off. We should pay attention to that. There was at that time even the, in the rogue uh, theology that there could be prenatal sin that, that a, 
that a fetus, a baby in the womb, could, could sin and thus was condemned to living a life apart from God and needed, needed to seek atonement immediately upon his or her first breath. The kind of blindness that even enters our, our longing and our searching and our looking around for God enters our ideas that, that really, really are silly sometimes. And Jesus seems to be saying those sorts of things here in this story that is packed with so many, so many details and turns and twists and a repetition that becomes almost comical. Obviously, something has happened that no one else could do. There were healers and there were different treatments for people that maybe had been suffering from poor eyesight or even temporarily lost, lost vision. But someone born blind, that was a pre-existing condition. That was something where God would need to intervene. That was something that would be a true miracle. And with that in their midst, these people are blind. There is a movement in these different episodes as, as the dialogue goes on. But first of all, that this Jesus is referred to as a man. This man did this to you. This man um, put mud on your hands and on your eyes. And, uh, and, then, and then there is an evolution in the man that has been born, born blind from birth starts talking about he is a prophet. He is a prophet. He is one sent from God. He comes to tell forth and foretell what, uh, what God is doing. He's a prophet. And then, then as our story evolves, we eventually hear it and see it blossom, blossom into, do you believe that I am the son of man? There is a progression in the revealing, a progression of belief, a progression of response that should guide us as we follow this story. The leaders of the synagogue could not abide the answers of this one who had regained their sight. His sight has, as they, he became more and more direct and more and more insistent that uh, that he was healed by someone who was sent from God. They became more and more intolerant until it says, and they drove him out. Now, to me, this is the point of good news. To me, this is the point of, uh, of compassion, and this is the point of the power of God and the glory of God revealed. Because the next phrase says, when Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he found him, he said... Do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus came to seek the lost. 
And here, this person is forcibly cast out. He is lost uh, symbolically from his own tradition. He is lost symbolically in the eyes of keeping the law. He is lost from the structure and the institution of the synagogue. He is driven out. And yet, people of God, beloved of God, Jesus goes after him. And he engages him in conversation, not just in a friendly way, but in a way that is fully revealing of who he is. Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered, the man said, and who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. It's me. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. In these two short verses is a conversion, is a fulfillment, is the whole point of the story, if you will. That as people are reading along, as they are listening, as they are engaged with this story, the, oh, oh, I see, this is so that those who are blind might see and believe. Oh, this is so that we might know that Jesus is the Son of Man, the one who is coming into the world, the one foretold by Daniel that would come and would, would, would be the beginning of the new age, the fulfillment of prophecy. Here he is. And this one, the one who is driven out, is the one who quickly and completely believes. And Jesus says some curious things as he continues to reveal himself to this man who now believes and now is worshiping him. It's for us too. And Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see and those who do see may become blind. I came into this world for judgment. For judgment. That's a quality of God. It's, it's one of the ways that we define God's holiness. It's one of the things that we must be reverent about and have deepest respect, even fear, that God looks on in our inward being and knows our, our motives and our thoughts, our deepest ambivalence and our, our willingness to believe and our resistance to believe, the condition of our, our souls and our, our minds, where our lives are headed. And it's God who judges our final destiny. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment. I looked ahead on the Covenant Home altar this week. Maybe you have too. Mike Langer, the covenant pastor in Glen Ellen, Illinois, is the one who wrote reflections on, on the text for this week coming up. There's three different days on, on John 9. Wednesday and Thursday and, and Friday. Uh, Friday got my attention. There's a big title here that says, Judgment is spiritual blindness. 
goes like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and everything was good, very good, for about one chapter. Then came the temptation in Genesis 3, in italics, to be like God, able to judge between good and evil. And Mike writes, the ninth chapter of John's Gospel is a recapitulation of that story. The disciples went to judge sinner from sinner. The neighbors wanted judgment on who gave the blind man his sight. The Pharisees have made their judgment, and three rounds of interrogation do nothing to change it. Now because only God can judge the human soul, true spiritual blindness develops from a life oriented toward judging others. Hmm, I read that a couple times. True spiritual blindness develops from a life oriented toward judging others. Boy, there's a lot of that in that text, isn't there? Judgment flying back and forth and and, uh, and the anxiety and the, and the disturbance just grows. The, the, the chaos grows. Everything that is opposite of peace and joy grow. And it, and it ends up with the, the healed man being the victim and, and driven out. True spiritual blindness develops from a life oriented toward judging others. The warning here is that Jesus came to, to judge so that the blind may see and the seeing may grow blind. As these devotions are, are meant, uh, I started thinking about my own life. I started thinking about my tendency, my habit of judging others. Oh, it happens all the time in my daily living around, along the roads of daily life we just sang. In those situations, I'm quick to judge how someone else is, is driving or, or doing or what they've forgotten or, or mistakes that they, they might have made or, or how they look or how they don't look. It's just an endless way of looking at the world through lenses of judgment. I'm pretty good at kind of doing it in a way that kind of builds up my own self-esteem. I'm pretty good at, uh, at letting it encase my, my own soul and so that there can be uh, a self-righteousness that starts to sprout and grow and blossom. Pretty good at, uh, at, let, at letting that kind of um, be counterfeit spirituality. So that my seeing is, is based on right or wrong, or, or yes or no, or, or, or worse or better, or all different kinds of categories. Those are spiritual activities, aren't they? Yeah. True spiritual blindness develops from a life oriented toward judging others. Mike wrote about this on Thursday, too. Oh, this is a little more personal. This helps. He's going to 
talk about himself. The title is, What Makes Me Blind? Mike writes, I sort of feel for the parents in this story. At first, they feared the Pharisees who could kick them out of the synagogue, so they chose their words carefully and redirected the Pharisees' power back to their son. The implication being that they were willing to let him get kicked out. Ah, judgment, fear, cowardice, resentment. It's hard to tell in this story what leads to what. That's true. There's a whole swirl of things. Judgment, fear, cowardice, resentment. But the point becomes clear throughout this chapter that these are all part of what it truly means to be blind. I mean, did everyone somehow miss the ridiculously amazing news in this story? Oh, this is Mike talking about himself again. He's modeling maybe the way that we become more aware of our spiritual lives in Lent. When I have shirked from doing what I know is right in the eyes of God, I can usually point to a moment when things begin to topple. Oh, this is really interesting. I chose judgment over empathy, fear over love, cowardice over confidence, resentment over conviction. These are the things that make me blind. Oh, that I would see. Oh, that I would see. So it does turn out that Jesus is, is talking very personally, not only to this one man who can see now, but to every single person, including the Pharisees around him and his disciples. Even John recorded this for us to see this is about me, it's about my blindness. I want you to reach for uh, the Pew Bible. I've got some homework for you to do, an assignment. Open it to uh, page 140 in the New Testament. The top of it is the end of the John 9 passage that we've been considering. And take a pencil. There's uh, some in the pews there, and... Uh, Pass them to each other. You see there on the left, page 140, right along the margin there, I want you to write, to write in that margin. The pastor said it's okay to write in the Bible. <laughs> Psalm 119. Psalm 119, colon, 18-23. Do that in every Bible that we have in this sanctuary. You see, in days and years to come, people will look at these Bibles and they'll be leafing through and that will catch their eye. And they'll say, I wonder what that is about. In Psalm 119, 18 through 20, hmm. And then they'll leaf back and they'll find it. Psalm 119, 18 through 20. Oh, it's on page 755 in the Old Testament. 
Oh, these words. Maybe it not only is in Jesus' mind, but it's also an instruction from Jesus through John for a prayer, for the answer to, oh, I don't want to be blind. How can I see? What kind of a prayer uh, should I pray? Is this something that God would want me to do? Are there words in Scripture that would guide me to such a prayer? And there they are, there in Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes so that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I live as an alien in the land, driven out. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your ordinances at all times. Open my eyes so that I may see. There's another woman, Clara Scott. Clara Scott lived in Iowa and she, she taught at Women's Seminary in Lyons, Iowa for many, many years. She was a music teacher and composed a great deal of instrumental and vocal music. There's even a book of anthems, the Royal Anthem Book, published in 1882. She's best known for a hymn, Open My Eyes That I May See. It goes like this. Open my eyes that I may see Glimpses of truth thou hast for me Place in my hands the wonderful key That shall unclasp and set me free Silently now I wait for thee Ready, my God, thy will to see. Open my eyes, illumine me. Spirit divine. Amen. 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 Let's sing as 